Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Guth is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about hi-fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest. Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. Today we're here with Anthony Grimani, who has spent the better part of four decades uh, in the audio industry at companies like Dolby, THX, uh, all the way through to creating his own companies, um, Grimani Systems, PMI Engineering, and Sonatus Acoustics. Sonatus Acoustics. Is that right, Anthony? Sonatus. 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 Okay. Well, welcome, Anthony. Thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Hi, Jordan. It's uh, it, thanks. Thanks for having me on there. And I think we're going to have a good time. Oh, I, I know we are. Um, it's kind of great hearing uh, about you from uh, Dennis, our producer, uh, and then reading up about you over the last little bit. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Fantastic. I, I guess to start, um, can you share how uh, you became interested in audio? Uh, I'm going to say hi-fi, but I know you're also really big into home theater. Uh, and with your, your resume and stuff, you have a lot of different audio experience and acoustic experience. How did you get interested in this? How is this something that kind of uh, cultivated for you? That's a good and long story. Let's just say it started, it started with my parents. Um, and, and here's how far back it goes. My mom was a trained opera singer. And uh, in her profession, she also did other things. So after a while, she stopped being a professional opera singer. She's trained that way. She was always singing around the house. There was always the sound of screaming women and men on the radio and on the hi-fi at home. So um, there's an injection. If you, you know, if you think of a syringe with like uh, DNA inoculation or whatever you want to think of it is like in one arm, I got, I got the music side from my mom. My dad was an electrical engineer who specialized in, in audio and vi- and video. Uh, he, he worked at the radio and TV um, actually in Australia at the time originally. And uh, so he always was messing around with stuff uh, because he was one of those audiophiles of the 50s he built all his own stuff. So he built his own amps and built his own speakers. And I um, uh, had some patents on an amp design. Uh, so it, it was it's an old family thing. Um, now, I never thought I was going to be working this professionally because I always thought, yeah, this is a hobby. Uh, always messed around with sound systems. I, I learned music um, in the conservatory. So, you know, played, played music, but I always thought it was an amateur, amateur thing as in it would be a hobby. Mm. Um, um, I studied electrical engineering with an emphasis on analog technology and communication and was thinking, I I don't know, I'll go, I'll go work for a company that does radar tracking systems. Who knows? I don't know. Um, I even applied for a job at Johnson and Johnson working on machinery for hygiene products, you know, whatever. And, um, I was playing music through college. I played in a few different bands and, um, I was looking for through the ads of a newspaper for a, um, for a new van for the band because we needed to get around and, and I saw an, an ad for Dolby. Dolby was hiring. I just finished my degree. I was working at the local radio station as their chief engineer. So that was sort of the beginning of, I would say my, my professional career. But I always thought again, at this point, it was, this is, this is a hobby. This is just yeah. a thing I do for fun. And there was an ad for a position at Dolby in the, uh, in the engineering and licensing department. And 
I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll apply there. I just like, maybe this will be more fun than working at Johnson and Johnson. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I got the job. And uh, so it was like, wow, here I am. And, and, and you know, here I am fre fresh out of college, working alongside what I want to acknowledge were some, if not most of the top brains in the audio engineering side of the industry. I was with people who I, I, I think at the time I didn't even start to comprehend uh, what knowledge base they had about everything uh, on audio on audio engineering on audio electronics uh, it was just fantabulous so that's that's how awesome. i got i got started so it was is a hobby that turned into a profession kind of by dumb luck oh that's amazing now and i i've read up about you a little bit um you have some really like uh, incredible history you moved over to THX after Dolby. You have some patents under your name, and you also did some some work in some technology in, um, or you did some work that led to technology that uh, kind of premiered or, or started with the Phantom Menace. I'm a huge Star oh, Wars yeah. nerd as well, so yeah. tell me a little bit about that. Like, how, what what was that? What is that? How does that all how does that all come together? First, the transition to THX was an interesting one. Um, in, in my work at Dolby, I, yeah, I was hired originally to design microchips for uh, noise reduction circuits for cassette decks, which is, you know, that, that little thing that is still used today as an icon to signify record. It's yeah. really funny. And, and most people, I don't know, I don't know if, you know, kids these days realize what that little square with the two holes and a little line between them represents a cassette tape. So I was hired to do that. This is in, in the mid eighties. And I'm like, I don't know how much longer cassette tape is going to be around. They're coming um, back, by the way. <laughs> they are coming back. And I've got a bunch of cassette decks if anybody wants them. Um, <laughs> some, some repair needed possibly. Um, and so, I, you know, there I am working on these things and I'm like, you know, we really should be getting into something else here at Dolby if we want to keep going. And to me, the obvious answer was the was to find a way to create a residential version of the Dolby stereo experience. And it's called Dolby stereo. I'm going to ask you to ask me later, was it stereo? Yeah. Uh, but that that it. it early stage immersive experience of being in a movie theater, watching Star Wars with with the destroyers going right over your head and all this stuff. Let's find a way to put that into homes and sell that as a licensed technology to homes. And uh, after some initial resistance from the staff there, you got it done. Um, and so I started to work more and more and more uh, around the the experience of, of bringing that cinematic experience in into a residence. And I kept bumping into irregularities. Um, so at Dolby, we would, we would obsess over the circuitry being absolutely perfect. So whether it was made by one company or another company or another company, they all be, they all decoded surround exactly the same way, perfectly, all great. And a lot of obsession, a lot of testing and rigorous testing. And then I would, you know, go to a, a store, a broadcast facility, a screening room over here, a mix room over there. And it's like, it never quite matched, even yeah. though everything was done correctly. And that was my, my initial accident with room acoustics. Uh, we had a trade show where we were introducing this new version of ProLogic and it, it wasn't working at all. And I thought it was all the electronics were broken. Turned out the room acoustic environment or, uh, was, was, was bad. Um, yeah. And I, I, along with the people I worked with, knew, knew nothing about it. And uh, I kind of fixed it by, by deduction, but it was like, what is all this? And somebody mentioned, oh, there's this guy called Tom Holman who's working a lot around acoustics. Uh, Tom Holman is the TH of THX. 
uh, ah, the X is the Tom Holman crossover. So one of the things he did, he was hired by Lucasfilm to improve the state of affairs in movie theater sound. Like, you know, movie theaters don't sound good. Let's fix it. Let's hire the specialist. And, and he went and did this deep dive into figuring out how to make movie theater sound good. So I call him and I look, hi, you don't know me. I work at Dolby and I'm running into this and running into that. And, and what ensued was a four-hour phone conversation about all the issues that were happening in the loudspeaker and acoustic environments in which I was, I was in. It was like my first opening into what really is an enormous rabbit hole of acoustics. Yeah. Um, and I, I had that, you know, that like moment where you're slapping your forehead. It's like, wow, we're worrying about these electronic circuits being absolutely perfect. And then you take this perfect sound and you launch it into speakers and acoustics that are just complete chaos, complete and utter chaos. And we expect it to come back right. No, it doesn't. Including being so bad that you feel like the decoding circuitry is not working because it sounds like giant mono. So I, I spoke with Tom a number of times about this and about that, I asked him a bunch of free advice, and he was always very willing. And um, at some point, he and the people at Lucasfilm decided to introduce THX into the residential space, and he threw my name into the uh, the possible people who, who could get recruited. I got a phone call from their recruiter, and it was like, wow, that's, that sounds really interesting. And I went and joined uh, uh, Lucasfilm to start the Home THX group. And uh, Home THX for the readers, or the readers, <laughs> for all y'all <laughs> readers, for all, for all listeners, um, here is, you know, people go like, what is this? Does that compete with Dolby? It's said, no, it doesn't. Dolby is a company that specializes in finding a way to, I, the way I like to put it is to cram more sound down a pipeline than should ever be allowed in there. Yeah. And cram it in and then uncram it. And I'll give you some examples of cramming in a second. And then there's the sound. That's where I was. Like, here's our signal. We've rendered our four channels, six channels, 22 channels. Now take it from here. And THX takes it from there. THX is the company that figures out, okay, well, we're going to treat the sound this way. We're going to use these kinds of amplifiers, these kinds of circuits, these kinds of speakers, these kinds of acoustical conditions. So in the end, what you're hearing is what was heard in the mix room when Phantom Menace was being mixed, for example. You mentioned that up. So um, I worked I worked there for 10 years. It was a fantabulous experience because I learned a lot more about sound systems and acoustics and tuning and all the things that in the end have to make it work. Yeah. So I, I mentioned the, the thing about the example of like, you know, cramming. Um, so Dolby's early technologies around noise reduction took a dynamic range of music that we usually like to listen to of about 90 dB from the loudest peak to the quietest sounds you typically would want to hear in a residential space and managed to jam that onto a cassette tape. And the cassette tape has a dynamic range of about 45 dB. That's the difference yeah. between the loudest thing you can put on there and the hiss. So cut in half. Just cut it in half. Yeah. And it's done by very intelligently squeezing the top level sounds and pushing the bottom level sounds up very carefully in very special ways. I don't have time to get into no. jamming it on. And, you know, I, I wish this was video because you could see jam it on, uh, jamming it onto the tape and then upon playback, opening it back up. And that's, that's uh, called noise reduction through a series of compression and in the spectral domain. And it works great. Today, Dolby's. Uh, well, so that's all gone, especially except for the 20 cassette decks that are coming back. Um, <laughs> in today's world, Dolby has a way to take up to 32 directions of sound. Uh, 
uh, for Dolby Atmos and on the you know the most extreme version and jamming it down onto a track that either goes in a in a movie disc pack or on on this thing called Blu-ray discs if you remember yeah. those or more commonly on streaming which has a bandwidth that, that would normally only allow one or two channels but they found a way to smash all of that down into this tiny little ba- bandwidth like you know cramming all of the bits and then expanding it back out and I sometimes equated to the process of Scotty beaming you from one, from one place to the other. You know, the, your molecules are all like reassembling like everything and, and hopefully like, your eyes are in the right spot. And usually they are. And so that's the amazing thing. Dolby's done it again. They found a way to like have sounds coming from all these different speakers with the eyes not being in the wrong place. Um, and that's that's they still do that. And, you know, they keep reinventing that. And now also for video, they've found ways to to take a dynamic range and a, and a range of, of picture uh, from the you know the black to the white and the range of colors and jam it down onto media that have no business handling it. And then, you know, play it back and on uh, upon playback, expanding it back up. So that's all very cool. Um, the quality of the signal sources that are given to us for audio and video have just gotten better and better and better. And this discussion we're going to have here is like, okay, well, now how do we restitute them? How do we actually uh, render them so that we get to hear what the director heard and see what the director saw, if we want to talk about video, so that it all looks like it did in the film studio? So you asked about Phantom Menace. So Phantom Menace is is, uh, kind of an extension of that. Um, I got to go back. back. Let's go back in time. (laughs) Uh, rewind that cassette tape and uh, in about 1998 if I remember right uh, Gary Reitstrom calls me up in my office and go hey I'm working on Phantom Menace um, and I I really want to do something more with the sound than just the 5.1 channel we have it's like well what do you want to do oh I want to do speakers everywhere we're going to do a new format it's going to be great it's like hold on the, the world is littered with formats that tried to do something new and because they were too expensive, too complicated, uh, not backwards compatible, just failed. And there's a really interesting poster you can get that shows all the different formats over the years of picture and sound uh, that all just went into the history books and that's about it. I was like, let's get together. So we had a lunch at the technical building, as it's known at the at Skywalker Ranch, and talked about what he's trying to do. And it was like, okay, okay, let me think about this. I went back, you know, to the drawing board, to the notebooks, and like, I was like, okay, if we did this, if we did that, I, I, I found a way to code the sound that he wanted to do because he, he gave me this little demo um, on one of the scenes where clearly he wanted to go clearly all the way around in the pod race scene. And in 5.1, it, five, the, what was the state of the art back then was 5.1. You could have the sound on the front. You could have the sound in the, on the sides, a little bit in the corners. And that was the end. It never would go fully back. And he was like, I want it. I want the sound to go all the way behind me. I don't want it to just stop here. So a bunch of thinking and analyzing and staying up at night and, you know, doing that creative process. And it was like, okay, I I think if we do a phase matrix coding of the surrounds into the existing two channels, the the side left and side right channels, the surround left and surround right, by doing all of this machination, I think we can encode those extra channels for Gary Reitstrom and and then produce all of this in 5.1 transfer so that it's the same it looks exactly the same as before to the to the film formats but upon playback you expand it back out and it it made use of some technologies that were very dolby-esque very Um, cool 
And so that was the subject of the invention and the patent. And then we reached out to Dolby and said, okay, we want to do this. Can we, you know, rather than do it separately, rather than have THX do something different, Dolby, can we just create a partnership so that Dolby builds the boxes for the movie theaters using this, this uh, patent pool and we just do a launch together. And we did. So there was a partnership between uh, THX and Dolby to introduce this new format that at the time was called Surround EX. Surround EX. Surround now, EX. Now, with that, that was still primarily based on like theaters, like um, like the large scale stuff. How did that kind of eventually or did it eventually kind of make its way into it the homes, like smaller it, it environments? And I was always thinking that it's like, well, we're going to do something that doesn't just just work in the initial release. It also has to show up uh, correctly in the home environment. So the 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 track with a 5.1 track with this encoding that hides the extra channels, once it's put onto at the at the time. Uh, already a DVD, a laser Ooh. discs, if you remember those. Yeah, with, I remember laser discs. Um, and if you want some, I've got some over here. I'm not using them. Um, <laughs> and onto, you know, a DVD, you know, by, by 98, DVD was well, well implanted. So by the time that track gets transferred to DVD, those encoded channels are, are in there. And then you can decode that in the home. The surround EX circuitry got adapted into a, a home into a residential version of Dolby Digital Surround EX for extended. Um, and there it was. Yeah. So you so starting, uh, I would say in 2000, I don't know the exact dates, but wh whenever, whatever Phantom Menace finally found its way onto DVD for home release, you could hear that in, in, uh, in, in 6.1 channel. So that was not 7.1. It was 6.1. It was one extra channel that broke the, the 5.1 original where you originally had something on your side to the left side to the right. There was extra back channel. Very cool. Now, and I, I'm guessing uh, that work kind of led you in, in what you were saying about uh, thinking about bringing that to the home environment led you to then leaving THX and kind of creating your own companies. And, and what was the impetus behind that? What was the, what, what were you looking to do? What were you looking to kind of achieve in, in doing that? So for the record, it's not that kind of work that made me leave THX. Um, okay. Sorry. It was yes. actually, it was a totally different project that made me leave THX. And now we're getting a bit personal. Um, it, it, by the time it got to about 1999, uh, my wife and I decided it was time to have a kid. Um, and there's this thing that happens when you're on the road all the time that gets in the <laughs> way of having a kid. Yeah, there's this like timing. You got to be in the same place at the same time. Yep. And uh, there's also this other thing called working a lot and being stressed and running around like a maniac that also gets in the way. Um and so I announced that I was going to start a family and, you know, and leave. And everybody's like, no, you're not leaving. It's like, yeah, I am leaving. I got to do this. It's like, well, can you retain you as a, as a consultant? Okay. So I stayed on for quite a while as a consultant, uh, you know, less hours, uh, more relaxed time, more being around the home. And now I have a beautiful 23-year-old daughter, Sophia, who is, uh, uh, you know, gorgeous and is the result of that. Amazing. Um, Congratulations. So Thank you. And so then, um, and then like why start a comp a separate company? So I, if, if, uh, I, I do have to credit a, a guy, either credit or blame, I'm not really sure. There's a, there's a lo local AV integrator, um, 
who really encouraged me to do this other thing that was interesting. So uh, Russ Herschelman is his name. He's known in the kind of the old older circles of the Cedia uh, integration guys. Um, Russ was like, you know, so I, I, I build theaters all the time, but I, I need... I need design services around acoustics. I need documentation that I can hand to the builder. I need to understand what this is, you know. And I know that THX does that for movie theaters. You know, when you're working on a movie theater, you work with the architect and the interior designers and stuff and help them figure it out. I need that for home theater. It's like, well, uh, okay. And it's like, you should start a company that does that. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not, he's like, no, 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 you, you, he really encouraged me, pushed me to start a company that does, that offers design services for what I like to call home cinema uh, today. Uh, but basically figure out here's a room, uh, here's the gear the client would like to use, here's the use case for this thing, come up, come up with an, uh, a, a design for the room for optics and acoustics and everything that means that they're going to get the best out of their equipment and their budget and, and uh, the installation. So I like, you know, said, okay, well, yeah, I'll see. Well, you know, while I'm still working as a consultant for THX, I started doing that and, and, and it was a lot of fun and started to gather clients and projects. And I was like, okay, I'm going full, full force in this. So we're, we're going back to the year 2000 now. Um, remember that year where the clocks were all supposed to break and all the Y2K. computers were supposed oh, to yeah. blow up by 2K? Doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> and now, 23 years later, we've done a thousand different designs. So, no um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. We do between 30 and 40 a year all over the world. Uh, I like, I like to say, uh, you know, from, from Mongolia to South Africa, all over. No um, and we've been as far as those places. Um, now, it sounds like you come into play as the rooms are getting built primarily. Do you also kind of come in and, and people are essentially looking to squeeze the last bit out of their existing yep. setups? And you come yep. in and say, like, this is what you do. Yeah. So ideally for the for the project to be most successful, uh, it, it should be considered at architectural level, just before sure. anything is built that you look at the plans and you go, yeah, you don't want to put the door in the middle of where the screen's supposed to be. That's just going to get in the way. Naturally. Um, and you don't want to put the door to the side of the screen because then every time you're walking in and out, you're interrupting all of the people that are sitting there watching the movie. Uh, you want to put it you know, at the back. That's a, that's a basic architectural thing. Um, so ideally it's done at architectural level, completely on plan and you work through the design and then it gets built. Doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you get, we get brought in halfway through construction or yeah. all the way at the end after the thing is built and the client's like, well, you know, it's not quite working right. I, I thought my expectation was a little different for this. I'm a big fan. I go to movie theaters all the time and I listen to this. It's not right there. So then we try to fix it. And the fix is sometimes acoustical issues. Sometimes the acoustics are done sort of okay, but the position of speakers isn't right. Sometimes the tuning is very far off. Sometimes things are connected all wrong. Sometimes it's all of the above and we do whatever we can to make the best of the situation. Interesting. And I, I guess kind of a follow up question to that is we're talking a lot about home theater. Is there a major difference in how you would design a room and set up a room for home theater, which is I, I think of like 7.1 channel surround sound or 7.2, whatever multitude of speakers versus like a, a typical or a more traditional hi-fi setup, which would be like a, a 
two channel system or a stereo um, system or something like that. Is there a lot of difference between the two in, in, there, in the room design? Sh- there shouldn't be. Uh, and I know that surprises people when I say that. Um, in, in the end, um, the radiation pattern of a speaker system and its interaction with the room acoustics um, is, an, is an ensemble that's about the same, whether it's just left and right speakers or an array of, of seven or 11 speakers around you at, at kind of a, at horizontal level and then other six speakers above you if you're doing, you know, doing a big Atmos room. It should be the same. And I found it to be the same. And if you go back through the literature and the, the research on what people like when they're listening to two speakers, it's the same. There's one core difference that is going to surprise your listeners. Um, to me, the way to do a, a home cinema correctly, you want to hide all the speakers, including the front ones, and you want to put them behind an acoustically transparent screen, the, the three front speakers. Um, so that it's like you walk into a movie, you walk into a movie theater, you don't see speakers. Sometimes you see an array of them up on, on the walls up high, or sometimes they're all hidden by stretch fabric. Um, so the three front speakers in a home cinema are going to be, if they're done correctly, are going to be flush mounted, baffle mounted, uh, in the wall or, in, or right on the wall behind the screen. And if you l- look at how most people do two-channel high-end hi-fi, the pair of front speakers is pulled away from the wall some distance. Yeah. And um, there's an aesthetic difference there. Then you get into the, well, what's right? There's a, there's a different presentation to how that sounds. And you go, well, what's right? Um, and I'm, I'm going to come out and say, well, both are right and both are wrong. Yeah. Um, so... Here's what's interesting. I, uh, I have heard a pair of speakers that's out in the room, you know, three, four feet away from the front wall or from the side wall sound absolutely horrible because of acoustic conditions or, or uh, tuning of the speakers just sound like meh. And I've, I've also heard a pair of speakers flush mounted in the wall sound fantastic. And I've heard it the other way around. So I think there's a there's a there's a difference in habit between those two applications. I will say that there's a lot of recording studios out there which are the the reference, right? I mean you're yeah. you're listening to high when you're listening to hi-fi sound, you're trying to get back to what the recording engineer and producer heard when they were making the track. And if you go to most most recording studios, they don't have a pair of speakers out from the wall, out in the middle of a room, as I get away from the microphone to simulate that. Yeah. Um, the, the main speakers are baffle mounted in the wall, maybe up high over the window where they can see the, the talent playing in the, in the live room. And so it's interesting to note that the most, I would say the most hi-fi, the most audiophile part of it, which is what the the recording engineer and the musicians and the producer heard was out of a pair of speakers that's mounted in a wall. Mm. And so then you get into the, well, when I pull them out of the wall and I put them in the room, I like, I like the sound, I like the sound better. It's like, okay, well, so it's different. If yeah. you like it better, that's all cool, but it's not what the, it's not what the mixer heard. And so then you get into this philosophical thing of like, well, what, what is right? High yeah. fidelity is fidelity to the original presentation. Well, is the original presentation musicians playing in a concert hall or is it as it was heard over loudspeakers? I don't really know. But I am going to say um, through careful design, 
uh, of the kinds of speakers you're using, where you put them, how you adjust them, and what you do with the whole acoustical environment, you can make a pair of wall-mounted or baffle-mounted speakers, as in not out in the room, taking up the first three or four feet of the space, you know, one or one, 1.2 meters of the space, uh, just having speakers baffle-mounted, you can have those produce a wonderful soundstage with depth of soundstage and everything you would want. So it's possible to make a home cinema that's also an audiophile playback space that makes people go, wow, that sounds awesome. That's so cool. And I guess... My, my, the next question that, that kind of comes up here is where do you start? Like, it, it sounds like the speakers are one piece of this puzzle and the electronics are one piece of this puzzle. Um, the room is another giant piece of this puzzle. When you go into a space for the first time, where do you start? Do you, do you start with dampening? Do you start with like uh, uh, placement? Like where do you begin? So you start you start with this. You start with some coffee or cappuccino. <laughs> I love it. That's where I start. That's how my days go. Yeah. So, for those of you just listening, I just held my cup of coffee up at the camera <laughs> that Jordan can see. Um, you start with cappuccino, and then and then you scratch your head and you go, okay, well, so I love the way you put it. These are pieces of the puzzle. So this is. This is my, I, I love the way you asked about the, the career thing, because really, if you think about a sound system, it is composed of several links of a chain. Yeah. Um, and I, the links start with the production, like the, the recording or production of source material. It's like, that's the food, you know, that's what you're starting with. Yeah. And then that gets put onto a medium which is the second link, is the medium a good medium? And we all know that low quality MP3 is not a good medium. Um, for the record, I'm gonna say that high quality MP4 is astoundingly good, AAC as it's known, or any, any of the current uh, better quality streaming oriented compression algorithms are essentially transparent to linear PCM. Um, which is a very bold statement. I never knew, I, I never thought I would say this, but I do. You can, you can listen to stuff on some of the better streaming uh, 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 services and have reference quality sound. Okay, so first link of the chain is the recording. Like how, how well done is that? Second link is the, is the actual medium you're using, whether it's streaming or something that you're buying that's a physical medium. And cassette tape, if it's well done with Dolby C type <laughs> or S noise reduction, is a very hi-fi medium. Um, and in, in that you can record something that sounds every bit as good as the original source, which is also a bold statement. And then that, that source gets played back. You gotta have a source machine that has good sound quality output. Today it's digital through, so you don't really have to worry too much about it. Then that goes into, in the case of multi-channel sound, whether it's for music or film, it goes through a surround processor. That's the next link. You gotta have a good surround processor that decodes the sound correctly, has good quality. Then the next set of links is the amplifiers. You gotta have decent amplifiers. And there's amazing amplifiers with built-in digital signal processing today uh, that are not enormous. They're not giant, you know, pigs that take to take an entire power station to run. There's good ones out there, but you gotta choose the right ones. And then you have to have the right loudspeakers. That's the next link in the chain. Oh, you gotta you got have speaker wire that's the right type for your installation. And it doesn't mean you have to buy really esoteric wire. Uh, but you just got to make sure that the gauge is of sufficient size, in, in a, enough diameter in either gauge or in millimeters uh, so that there is no interactions between 
the output of the amplifiers and the speakers. And that gets to a complicated thing. I'm just opening the topic. And it's not about power. Some people go, well, if it's a low power system, you can use a th thinner wire. No, no, no. It's about the length between the output of your amp and your speaker and yeah. the kind of speaker you're using. So if you have a speaker that's got very low impedance, you need more diameter of wire. Anyway, finally, the speakers themselves are a whole complicated conversation over here that I'll just say it's, you know, a, a part of the system. You have to decide what kind of speakers you're using, how much uh, dispersion they have, how loud they can play. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different factors. And then you're not done because that speaker sits in the room and you got to hear it. And between the speaker and your ears is a room acoustic environment. So the room and its acoustical character are an, are an integral part of the system. And I got slammed by that several times in my Dolby days uh, where I was just ignoring it. It's like, yeah, you put decent speakers into a room and you'll you'll hear all the beautiful work we put into these surround processors. Nope. Mm. The the room will mess you up in a major way. Um, and, and then finally, the sound waves that have left the speaker, some of which have gone directly to your head and some of which have bounced around the room and, and reached your ear, your eardrum will finally make it into your ears. And then the final part of the system, and I know this is kind of weird, are your ear canal, your eardrum and your brain. And those all have to be tuned. Interesting. Well, how, do you, how do you tune those? There first you go. Step, That's the question. Step, and it's amazing uh, how often this happens. First up, make sure you're, if you're seriously into this, make sure you get your ears cleaned once in a while. There's wax buildup in there that makes it sometimes one of your ears listens a slightly differently than the other ear. And, you know, make an appointment every six months or if you're a serious audiophile, make an appointment once in a while and get your ears cleaned. It's amazing how much gunk builds up in there. Um, and, um, and then... Your brain, I can't help, you know, yeah. get yourself picked out, <laughs> whatever. Um, I do have to say that our, our, it is known that our auditory system degrades over time. Yeah. You know, it's a, just like all the other muscles and joints in a human body. They do get stiff and they change. And you may find uh, listeners here may find that over time, their listening acuity has gone down. Your spatial hearing, your ability to separate things between front to back, left to right, top to bottom may change over time. Uh, there's there's no way around that. Just, uh, you know, take care of vitamins on a regular basis <laughs> to keep limber, exercise a lot, eat a lot of fish. I don't know. Um, so that th those to me are all the elements of the of the of the chain of enjoyable music or film listening, the the actual recording, the medium that it's put on and transmitted, the electronics that lead to the amplifiers, the wires, the speakers and the room and your ear canal that's got to be cleaned. And when you go into a room for the first time, is there such thing as an untreatable room? Is there a room that's like just so poorly designed or or just maybe not designed poorly, but acoustically not ideal or just terrible acoustically that is just not possible to get a good sound out? Um, so that, that's a good question. If you work it hard enough, you can always get to a point where it's like, yeah, OK, the client, the client goes, yeah, I like it. Um, yeah. It's maybe not going to be absolutely ideal. It won't uh, meet all of the criteria. Somebody goes, this is perfect sound, yeah. but you can get there. Um, so I, ideally, you have you know, the right source material. You have the right name. All of these things are right. So you can get to, you know, 100 point perfect. Yeah. And well, if the room 
is reverberant and echoey, it's going to it's going to get in the way. It's like one of the links in the chain is not perfect. Do you no. give up? No. Um, I've actually found, and this this may sound like complete heresy to some, uh, and I would have to say, well, come with me to those places. I found that by using digital signal processing that's available, again, in amps or separate outboard EQ boxes, you can do things to trick the ear brain of a human being into believing that the sound doesn't suck. Interesting. And I, I, I've been the, like the first surprise because I've been, I've been such a proponent of proper acoustics for such a long time because I had so many accidents with it yeah. that when I'm asked, like, here's the room, you're not changing anything, do what you can. I go, well, let's add, an, let's add a digital EQ DSP processor thing in here and let's see what we can do. And I, I work at it and try to do things. We can talk about what kind of things. But after three, four, five hours of messing with the tuning of the speakers and some things that I'm like, wow, that doesn't sound halfway bad. I'm, I'm surprised. Now, when I think about the design of houses and speaker design and, and all this over the last, I don't know, forever, um, everything's changing, right? Like yeah. the architectural standards changing, the interior design is changing and all that. Um, yeah. Has that evolved the the ways that you look at rooms? Does that change your setup? Like if you're in an open concept house and they're using like a section of a, of a larger space, that's going to be asymmetrical or I, I don't know yeah. the way that you explained it, but, or we'll describe it, but that does that all change how you approach things? You're describing it absolutely perfectly. It's interesting. I've been doing this long enough that that I notice trends. I go, wow, you know, there's this is this thing that people are doing now. And I, I, I equate it to hairstyles and pant, pant leg sizes. Yeah. How tight your so, pant legs are can determine the generation. Yeah. Who's in, who's in charge of the pant leg sizes? I'd like to know. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting sociological evolution. And I, I just, my, uh, my observation is that the, the younger set wants something different than the set just 10 years before and decides, no, our pant legs are going to be different to the pant legs of our forefathers. <laughs> and it changes. And there's no rhyme or reason. It's, you know. Um, a bit the same thing happens in architecture where it's like, well, we want to do, you know, we want to be creative. So we want to evolve it. So things change. Definitely the trend worldwide is to open floor space homes where yeah. the living space, the family room, the kitchen, the dining room are all one joint space, sometimes with some visual hints that say, well, this is where we dine. Yeah. And the hint could be a, a little pony wall or a little thing that changes the color of the walls from there to there. But acoustically, the sound waves go, I ignore that hint. I'm, yep. <laughs> I am not being told by the color of the walls to not go over here. Um, so uh, it is definitely a trend in that direction and has been for a while, these open floor plan spaces. And those get really challenging for the either the, the two-channel audio file or the multi-channel audio file or video file because the... Uh, because the sound is propagating in a space that has sometimes one second of reflection decay time. That means that you put a sound in the room and it bounces around the walls for a full second before it dies out. So now your brain's trying to figure out in the middle of all that, what's, what's the sound I'm supposed to be hearing? That's a real challenge. So, um, so what do you do in those spaces? Um, and 
first thing you do is you go, well, if you're really serious about it, maybe you put a little sound system here in the family area, but can you, this is when I talk to clients, like, can you dedicate another area somewhere else, a spare bedroom, a garage, something where you actually set it up correctly with a door that closes, where it's quiet and you can control the acoustics. And if they say, yeah, we focus on that. Yeah. Uh, if they say no, um, I usually try to do something to damp the room to do, do some things that either are look like sound absorbing panels. Sometimes they can be covered with a printed fabric. You can take a picture of the family and print it with really high resolution on a fabric that you then cover sound absorbing panels around the room or put some drapes, put some shades, use some overstuffed furniture with, with cloth upholstery or my, um, uh, suede or micro suede upholstery. Do whatever you can to try to bring the the reflection decay time down. And I'm using that word instead of reverb, uh, but whatever. To br bring bring the amount of reflected energy down, da damp it a little bit. Uh, and if you can't, if they go, we're not changing the room. You go, all right. Well, let's try to pick some speakers that radiate into the space in an even way, so that it doesn't. It's not subject to so many accidents on that. And I'll talk about what that looks like in a second. And then, absolutely, absolutely, you need some kind of post processing in the electronics, something where you can tune through, again, digital signal processing. You can tune around what the room is doing to break the speakers. So what I. Uh, uh, generally, in those big open spaces, if you measure the reverb time or the reflection decay time, what you'll find is a really interesting syndrome is uh, um, it's long, but it's really only long in the mid range. So between maybe 500 hertz and three or four kilohertz, you may have 0.8 seconds or one second of time in which the, the sound's just rolling around the room. And then at high frequency, you'll find that it dies, the, the time dies down. And that's because the mean path of all of those reflections uh, absorbs the high frequencies. There's always stuff in the room that's going to absorb the high frequencies. So the highs are going to stay in the room much less time than the mid-range. And then the lows tend to propagate into the open space and get absorbed and diffuse somewhere, you know, somewhere else. So what I often find, and I, I wish this was video, but I often, so I can show the shape of this. I usually find these characters acoustically of the room that are, that are bell shaped centered in the mid frequencies. And that means that anything you're putting in the room, what you're hearing ends up sounding kind of like this, rather than be rich and full, it ends up kind of with this weird mid-rangey unpleasant tone and so it doesn't have any uh, you know it doesn't have life so what is life yeah. whether you, when you listen to music life is supported by the highs being open and sparkly and yeah. by the bass being tight and and clean and rich relative to everything else mid-rangey sounds like a bullhorn in an old rusty gas station somewhere in the middle of the desert you know playing an old country tune that's not pleasant yeah so, so what you do is you do things with DSP to actually change how the tonal balance is emitted out of the rooms. And you got to be careful about how you do that because you can screw it up some other ways. Um, <laughs> so, y yes, trend, trends are, are always going to be there and they change and evolve. If a room is completely untreatable, you do things with DSP. If there's a conversation that can be had about applying things, uh, I would say... Um, inconspicuously around the room so that it doesn't look like an audio lab you should go there and there's a, a lot of ways to put things on the wall sometimes the ceiling things that look like architectural features but there really are acoustical trickery 
that is absolutely fascinating. And I have a million other questions that I could uh, start asking you. Um, just for a moment, we're going to take a, a quick little break and uh, we'll jump back into the conversation after a little bit of music. I don't know why, but I feel like dying when I'm talking to you. My head is spins and I just can't begin when I'm talking to you. Welcome back from the break. I, I guess my next line of questioning is you have your own audio company uh, or you're, you have your own speaker company, I should say. Um, and is this a result of the speakers that are out there by others not giving you exactly what you needed uh, or you wanted to do stuff a little bit differently? Or, or can you tell me a little bit about um, why create your own speaker company? What, what um, were you looking to solve? <laughs> That's a good question. The world needs another speaker company like it needs a <laughs> hole in the head. There's there's hundreds. And so like what gives? Well, there's a little thing I said actually before about how to produce sound in a room and interact with the room in an acoustical way that's uh, going to kind of guarantee better sound. That was one of the uh, one of the driving forces. So what we found is interesting if you're in, whether you're in an echoey space, you know, one that's untreated or one that's reasonably treated, um, knowing that reasonably treated, uh, we, we didn't get to that topic yet. Actually, let, yeah. let's go back one second. You okay. asked about like, what do you do in a big room without treatment? Well, you know, we try yeah. to make it work. And then what do you do in a room that you are going to treat? Um, well, an interesting little tidbit is that you never apply more absorption, material that damps the sound out, that gets rid of the sound of the room by by sucking it up through fibrous resistance. You never treat more than 10 to 15% of the walls. Otherwise, it's too dead, hmm. which means there's still, you know, 80, 85, let's say 85 to 90% of the sound reflections are still in the room. They're just controlled. Um, so that's, a, that's an interesting tidbit for your listeners is acoustical treatment of a dedicated listening room or a theater means typically no more than 15% of the walls and ceiling are covered with material that's going to kill the reflections. Any more than that, and everything starts to fall into a, a, a analytical sound that's not pleasant. So not and all reflections are bad. Not all reflections are bad. You need some amount of some amount of them, right? And uh, there is a, a really fascinating body of work done on this about thirty-five years ago that really went into a deep dive of this and found that yeah, rooms need some reflection and has a target reflection decay time for every room volume out there, uh, and that shows that yeah, you don't want to you don't want to cover by the time you get to twenty percent of the wall surfaces, you're too dead. Hmm. So. Uh, whether it's a, a room that's untreated or a room that's treated, the speaker's r radiation in the room, the bubble of sound it puts out is going to bounce off the walls a little bit less if it's treated, but it's still going to bounce off the walls. And uh, so so now what? What we found 
we being my chief engineer, Manny Lacaruba, I'm actually pointing at where his office is, if anybody could <laughs> see where it was. Um, and I found that, hey, you know, when we're doing these rooms, the rooms that end up sounding better, the ones that work more functionally are the ones that in which the speakers have a more even coverage, where their their dispersion, the bubble of sound they put out across frequencies is more constant and wider, which is kind of like counterintuitive. Why is that? So went into deep research on that and we found, yeah, really what you what you want in a speaker is one that radiates in the mid-range and the upper mid-range and in the high frequencies. Um, pretty constant and pretty wide so that the sound that's bouncing around from the walls comes back to your ear and sounds more like the direct sound as opposed to something different that confuses you. And so we started to look for speakers that did that and started to talk to manufacturers and said, well, would you make speakers that, you know, get a little bit different this way? They maybe they use this trickery to make it do, do this and that. And they were like, yeah, no, we're not interested. Nobody's asking. We don't know what you're talking about. And, um, there's only so many times you you hit rejection until you go, that's it, I'm gonna do it myself. And that's what we did. After asking and asking and asking, we just said, you know, let's just let's just put some time, energy, and some money aside and let's go ahead and experiment with this. So uh, we actually found a client who we had just finished a room for, who was excited enough about what we were talking about to fund the the do the seed funding of this. We oh, designed, no designed some, yeah, it was a really cool story. Uh, hats off to David Steele if he's listening um, and uh, d uh, design some prototype speakers and put them up against the industry references. So there's at the time, this is going back seven years ago, uh, there were some speakers we would always use that, you know, if you were a home cinema designer or a home cinema integrator, you would always use those brands and those models. And we put them up against those in various different rooms. And they, uh, our prototypes always sounded better, cleaner, uh, tuned easier. And so we decided, you know, what the hell, let's just start a speaker company that uses some new thinking uh, that I like, I like to call it, uh, you know, speakers for the 21st century, because uh, it, it kind of breaks some of the conservative conservative thinking about speaker designs and says, yeah, let's do something different. So the speakers we make all have a really even dispersion and very wide horizontally focused a bit vertically, but very wide horizontally, and uh, actually follow the precepts and the work done by Dr. Floyd Tool at the National Research Council in Canada originally. Down the street from um, my, uh, from my um, hometown. Oh, well, there you go. Where I live, yeah, in Ottawa. Okay, cool. Um, so spent a lot of time in Ottawa in the early days of THX researching all this um, and actually follows the precepts that a lot of the Canadian speaker companies do anyway, based on the work of the National Research Council in, in Ottawa. Uh, but take it a step further. And we found that, you know, the, the way to make it work is to load the tweeter into a waveguide. Just radiating the tweeter out of the room was not consistent enough in how it lights up the room. Um, we decided to design a waveguide, got a patent on that, and and the tweeter is actually pointed vertically down into the waveguide, mm. um, and the sound is, is is forced out of the waveguide in this really, forced is maybe not the right word, it's directed out of the waveguide in a very even dispersion. And what happens from that is the soundstage seems much more natural, and the room-to-room -room consistency, even in very reverberant rooms, the ones you asked about, is better. And we did a bunch of early installations in rooms that were all hard surfaces everywhere. A marble, wood, hard, 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 hard. Where you go, there's no way you're going to get good sound out of this. And you're like, wow, that sounds good. Oh. 
always using some signal processing to tune around the room reverb, but it, it just uh, it works better. And Floyd Tool had predicted that. He had said in you know in his various papers and writings that that is the right way to design a speaker so that it works better in most rooms. He was right. Um, we we just found a way to do it our in in our own recipe to push that to really very wide and constant dispersion. Now we coupled that together with the idea of making active speakers. So rather than have the traditional method that started. I don't know, 70, 80 years ago of having the amplifier drive the speaker with one signal and then filter out the signals inside the speaker into either a tweeter and woofer signal or a tweeter mid-range woofer and basically filter it at the power level, you know, where, where it's, where you're dissipating power and therefore losing a fair amount of energy in the crossover filter board. We decided we're going to do that all upstream in the in the active domain and in the digital signal so signal comes from your surround today you can take the signal directly out of your surround processor digitally through a cat6 cable using audio over ip go directly into the amp staying digital filter out the signals to the different drivers assign them to their own amplifiers and their own equalization for the crossover and you have a way more efficient speaker system that sounds better and efficient means that you look you look at the speaker you look at this little thing that's only about this big and a little amp that's only about this big and you turn it up and you turn it up and you keep turning it up it's like my god this thing goes up to 11 in fact 12 i can't believe i'm getting this much sound out of the small box it's like well because it's more efficient than what you're used to seeing out of the old school designs so yeah, that's a that's a little bit about what we're doing. I don't want to make this all about a, an ad for Grani Systems, but um, no. But it, it's interesting to kind of hear about um, kind of what went into it based on your history yeah. and all of that, and why why you felt it was needed. And then I, I guess one kind of follow up question to this is: now you have your own speakers. Um, that's part of I, I'm going to call it your secret sauce to get the the best acoustics, and you have your your kind of your in-person evaluation of the space and, and kind of doing all that. Do, do other people buy your speakers and get like the same results? Or is it is it a combination of those set of speakers with the other stuff that you do? Yeah, um, ultimately, again, because it's a chain, you want all of the links to work well. Yeah. Um, I'd like to say that you got to use our speakers or else everything's going to be broken. And that would be a complete lie. We have politicians to say those kinds of things. I'm not going to say <laughs> that. Um, there are some very good speakers designed by other companies that, that, you know, a lot of which are Canadian that I have a lot of respect for. Um, and, uh, and some non-Canadian companies too. There's a few people who know how to do those. Um, but ultimately you, you do want to make sure all of those steps are, are, are cared for. What I do find in general in our industry is acoustics is usually done as an afterthought after you've put all the stuff in the room and you go, dude, I can't understand the dialogue. I don't hear a difference between left and right from front to back. It just all sounds like a giant mush. Then you try to fix it. And by trying to fix it, it looks like band-aids. You know, what you end up yeah. putting all over the walls is these panels that don't have a, a, a visual character to them that's attractive. Yeah. And an interior designer's worst nightmare. It is a nightmare. Um, yeah. So not just an interior designer. So I, my feeling is that in order to let yourself go into Mahler's Fifth Symphony or go into Phantom Menace, you want to not be distracted by all the stuff in the room. 
And if yeah. you're sitting there and you're looking at speakers and you're looking at all the stuff on the wall, you're constantly reminded that you're not in the concert hall, but instead you're in this room with all the stuff on the wall. So I like to design rooms in which the, the room's visual character is neutral. Everything is hidden because then you're just left with the music. And in the middle of the music, you don't find your eyes looking at the tweeter over there or looking at the amplifiers flashing lights down here. You just... You're just listening to the music. Um, so I am, I, I, I love to work with interior designers to hide all of this stuff, but hide it well. Yeah. So really, ideally, if the acoustics are thought of in the original concept and they're, t they're tuned to the size of the room and they're tuned to the kind of speakers that you're going to use and the speakers are appropriate for the room, uh, then everything works. And what does a speaker appropriate for the room mean? Well, it need, number one, it needs to be powerful enough. It needs to be able to put out enough energy into the room to not run out of steam. If you put speakers that are too small or too inefficient on the loudest scenes of a movie or or a concert whether it's classical or rock they're going to they're going to overload and they're going to sound bad yeah. um, so you need to have enough headroom they also need to have the right frequency response and off-axis response there's a bunch of different things that mean that it's going to sound good um, but you have to consider all of all of those links in the chain um, so uh, that's my long answer to say ideally if you want nirvana in, in your sound, you know, where it's like, man, I am I am there at Symphony Hall or I am there at the Concert Gebouw in in, uh, in Holland, in um, Amsterdam, an amazing, amazing space, uh, or, or at the Vienna Philharmonic. I, I am there with these musicians. If you want that, you really need to worry about all those links in the chain. If you're just happy to have Coldplay playing in the background and loud, Maybe you don't need to worry so much. I love Coldplay. <laughs> by the way, by the way, well, the best best sounding concert I've ever been to was a yeah. Coldplay concert in Buenos Aires, Argentina, a few months ago. I happened to be down there for some business, and it, it was insanely good. the The sound system it was amazing. It was hi fi, uh, which is an anathema. It's like what the sound the sound system is reproducing what I'm hearing out of the recording, but it's like, where does it start and stop in that giant circle? It was, was amazing. Was it interior or exterior? Exterior in, huh. in, their, in the biggest football stadium. The thing, the game you play with your foot that we yeah, yeah. here in this country want to call soccer. It's football, sorry. It should be called that. <laughs> biggest, it, and it's a big oval bowl that should be reverberant and all ugly. They yeah. made it work something incredible. Now, back to our program. Um, you, you want all of those links, all of those little links to all come together, including a study of the acoustics and what you're putting on the wall and on the ceiling. If it's a dedicated room, it ends up being these special panels you buy from several different vendors that you choose the right number of them and you put them in the right places. If it's a non-dedicated room, then you got to play with surfaces, you know, drapes, like I said, drapes, shades, there's some, um, uh, there's some drop down shades uh, from Hunter Douglas, if I can mention them, yeah, that yeah. are the, these these honeycomb things, some of which have pretty good damping character, good absorption character. Sure. It's a bunch of different tricks you can do to, to make it work. And for the, um, I'm going to say like the, the hi-fi listener or the home theater enthusiast that is on the uh, maybe lower end of the, the accessible, being able to just kind of throw money at a problem and, and get it uh, completely solved. Um, where would they start? Like, is there like, what about this automated room correction stuff, for instance, or yeah. like what technologies, where would they begin to say, this is, 
I know I need room acoustics as part of this chain. Where do I begin? Yeah, that's that's good. Um, so ab- about auto room EQ, I could get shot for saying this. I have <laughs> I have yet to meet one that I really love. Okay. Where you push the button and you go through all the manipulations and you move the microphone and goes, and in the end you go, wow, oh my God, I've yet to meet one. And I have a bunch of theories around why we could make, we could do a three hour podcast about that. So I, I, that's my way to go. I, I do not think that, um, I've not yet found an auto room EQ thing that's going to fix a bad acoustical character. Uh, there's a new set of programs uh, from two different vendors that aim to do that. The jury's still out. I haven't played with them a lot to be able to go, yeah, that works or that doesn't. So um, put that aside. Next thing is yep. you crack your, your knuckles like this and you go to the interwebs and you go, look, there's a bunch of people out there that have uh, done video videos about room acoustics, most of which are relatively correct. I sometimes monitor that and like I'll sit around for two or three hours looking at what people say. And most of them say the right thing. And some of them have good case studies that tell you, you know, here's good things you can try to do. Um, so get it, get a bit educated um, from, from that or from books. There's a bunch of great books written. I would definitely recommend if you're really into it, the book by Dr. Floyd Toole called Sound Reproduction uh, goes into lots and lots of detail about what's a good speaker, what's a good room, what's a good acoustical character. Doesn't tell you what to do in your living room to make it work. but. Yeah. Uh, it, it's more info. Um, there's consultants out there. My, my firm does consulting. There's three or four other good firms that consult with that to help you figure out how to deal with either your dedicated room or your multi-use space. Um, and then I, I would say, uh, in all of that, especially in the mixed use space, be, be careful of what I call sometimes design myopia. The hell is that? Yeah. So when you're looking at it with an interior designer, when you look at it on on plan, when you're thinking about it and you go, oh, I don't know if I can put that thing there. It's going to look ugly. And then you you put it up there and then you give yourself a few weeks. You stop even noticing that what's called acoustic cloud you put up there. Your friends come over and sit down over uh, coffee, wine, whiskey, whatever you like to do. Whatever you want. Cognac, whatever you like to do. Maybe I don't what whatever, and you listen to some music, and and you ask them, do you notice our acoustic cloud? They they look up and it's like, no, I what I I didn't even notice it. Like you know, there there's a point at which you can do these things that you get this anxiety or of it of it looking ugly, but in in fact, if you do it correctly, nobody ever notices. Hmm. So I'll give you the example of the acoustic cloud, and actually, um, I I talked about Coldplay in Argentina. Yeah. Let's expand on that. That's a case study. So architect, successful architect, buys a set of extremely expensive speakers from, can I, can I mention brand? I, of course. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Magico is a company not far from us that makes beautiful speakers, hi-fi speakers. They're great. Yeah. They're fantastic. Um, the, their top of the line is crazy expensive and it's twice as expensive by the time you get to Argentina. Buys a pair of those and puts them. I, I can't believe, Jordan, that you asked about this. He puts them at the end of an open space, big, big home space, with tall ceiling, all the way at one end, close to the window, yeah. asymmetrically. It's like you described exactly that client. Right. So imagine like a big space over here. I'm, you know, I'm drawing this yeah, on, yeah. in video, but imagine on one end is where 
he and family sit and they listen to their pair of speakers and like going in the other one direction is windows on onto a patio that leads to a nice yard the other direction it's dining room living room kitchen and on and on and on and on and he's like man this gear is all perfect how come it sounds bad so uh, the electronics were msb very high-end fantastic beautifully designed electronics it should it should sound um it just it should sound like you're in heaven right if if you like music and it and it sounds like this (laughs) this is not the sound of heaven sorry um (laughs) so that's what brought me down there, you know, measured the room, blah, 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 blah. and I'm talking to an architect. The guy wants his space to look good. And so we dreamt up a whole bunch of ways to treat the space um, so that it still looked architecturally relevant. This is for an architect, a, a yeah. well-known architect in Buenos Aires who doesn't want his house to look like a pigsty, right? Um, we figured out things we could do to put here and here and here and here so that it still looks respectable. One of the big features was a cloud in the ceiling where dropped down from the ceiling was, was this structure came down, surrounded all the way around with a trough for, for indirect lighting that puts light back up onto the surface. It's down about 12 centimeters, uh, about six, seven inches, five and a half inches inside that cloud are absorbing and diffusing membranes, things that, that instead of the sound rolling around uh, vertically, it's absorbed and towards the back of it diffused. So that brought the reverb time down, the reflection decay time down significantly. It, it architecturally matched the space. And the cloud is essentially a structure with stretched fabric underneath it. The fabric is chosen so that it looks like painted sheetrock. And uh, what's behind the fabric is the actual materials. So you walk into this house and it looks like at the end of it, there's this interesting architectural feature that's a la- indirect lighting thing that makes the room Multi-purpose. look more interesting. Multi-purpose. It makes yeah. the room look more interesting than just a flat ceiling. Then the, the windows on the left side were covered by these different roll down shades, some of which were reflective, some of which were absorptive in the structure so that the whole window did not become a giant black hole of sound, but absorbed some of it. And then in the back of the area behind his sitting, um, we put this sculptured perforated wood structure that acted as an absorber and a low frequency tuned thing, but it just looked like there was a, a uh, a piece of modern artwork with all this interesting st- sculptures on its fascia, all of which was concealing acoustical stuff. Hmm. So, yep, the house, that whole living space looks different now, but none of n- none of his friends are going to walk in and go, you're a terrible What are you doing here? What are you doing? Yeah. They're all going to walk in and look at his giant Magico speakers, great speakers, and now they sound good. We also added a, a DSP process or a, a equalization processing to make it work because you can't do it without that. And now he's got something that sounds good and, and but does not look like an audio lab. You can you can get there. It just took some amount of inventing. You know, we had to creatively go through, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? What about this? What about that? And it was great working with a skilled architect because, you know, the words coming out of my mouth describing what I'm trying to do, he could like visualize, okay, we can make it look this way and make it look that way. And it was like, fantastic. So the the best union of acoustics and design together. I love it. Now, I, I know we're running out of time. Uh, my last kind of question, I try and ask this to everyone because at the end of the day, 
whether it be hi-fi or home theater, um, the technology is there. And you already mentioned this. The technology is there to get you closer to something. Uh, you mentioned like in Coldplay. What is the soundtrack to your life? If you were just sitting down purely out of enjoyment, what would you be listening to? Oh, my goodness. You know, I, I wonder that sometimes. Like, if you know, the, the other way I asked myself that question, if I was stuck on a desert island with yeah. one album, what would that be? I don't know. Um, I listen to so many different types of music and I try to imagine I'm going to listen to this over and over and over and over again. Um, what immediately pops to my mind is some of the early... Uh, Talking Heads albums that still just resonate with me. Some of the the stuff that was between pop and African, Ezimbra, uh, I just I just love to this day. Um, but beyond that, I, you know, I, I listen to pop, I listen to rock, I listen to jazz, I listen to all kinds of different music. Uh, I have a very diverse uh, musical taste, so I, I don't I don't have an easy answer for that one. Um, so. I also wanted to say before we go anywhere is that what is hi-fi? Is it two-channel or is it not? And uh, this is this is a place where I sometimes get into disagreements with people. There is an aesthetic of two-channel. Yeah. And two-channel, if it's well-recorded and well-played back, can give you a pretty uh, surprising and holographic uh, immersive experience where it's like sounds are like everywhere but you can't move your head very much from that mid position where it's supposed to be. Um, and I do want to say that I've heard some uh, really, really compelling multi-channel music recordings. So, so where hi-fi evolves out of just two channels, but goes into more channels, leveraging Dolby Atmos as a format that that if you're not already listening to that, you should pay attention. It does mean that you have to set up a bed of good loudspeakers all the way around you, well-tuned, you know, your front, your side, your back and, and top locations. Um, and there's some stuff out there recorded in multi-channel that's uh, that's to die for. And it is, it's hi-fi and hi-fi being, it sounds like being at the concert. It sounds like, like being in the mind of the record producer, what they wanted to do spatially, um, uh, energetically it's just really cool so um the, the soundtrack of my life would definitely be immersive audio multiple channels of uh all, all kinds of different music oh that's awesome anthony thank you so much uh actually this is the last question if people want to learn more about you hear about uh your thoughts and, and kind of your process or, or look up your company um our companies i should say where can they find you yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would start by looking at the, uh, interestingly enough, at the speaker company. You, you would go to, to GrimaniSystems.com, GrimaniSystems.com, or Grimani.tv goes to the same place. Okay. Um, and you can look at the products, whatever. There's also a, a video section and an interview section where you'll find a whole bunch of interesting uh, tidbits that go way outside of just the speakers, where I'm on there just yakking about this, isn't that some... some um, uh, some in useful information. Uh, the design company, the one that does consulting for uh, AV applications, that that website is pmiltd.com. Okay. So, Papa Mike India Lima Tango Delta.com, uh, aviator speak. Um, and then we have, you mentioned earlier, Sonatus. Um, we do have a line of, of acoustical treatments we've packaged in a kind of an easy to digest way that you would go to sonatususa.com. 
uh, S-O-N-I-T-U-S-U-S-A.com. And you can look at things we've done there. The idea there is we've, we've created these packages. Hey, if your room is 20 square meters, that's 200 square feet, uh, here's a here's two, two or three versions of packages you can pick. They would have enough absorption, diffusion, and base trapping to make it work. If your room is 400 square feet, 40 square meters, here's another package at, available at different levels and different different colors. Uh, so you can look there. There's also informational stuff there. Very cool. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, the time. And uh, hopefully in the future, we can have you back and dive into more because I feel like uh, I'm just scratching the surface on uh, some of the stuff that you have to offer. Sounds great, Jordan. These were great questions. I'd love to stay and keep doing this. But believe it or not, I actually have to get a gig. My guitar's ready to go. Uh, there's an audience that's going to be waiting for me if I don't show up. So oh, I'm going to awesome. play my guitar, like they say around here. And uh, hopefully we'll do another one of these. Sounds good. Have a great show. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.